You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today I have a very special guest with me that will be talking about all things Arctic. So I'm happy to have Dr. Bathsheba DeMuth, Assistant Professor of History and Environmental Society at Brown University. She is an environmental historian that specializes in the United States and Russia. So we'll get to be hearing, so we'll get to hear a lot of different perspectives today about Arctic communities, Arctic animals, and the history and interaction of the communities that live in the Bering Straits region. And even more exciting, Bathsheba recently authored a book called Floating Coast, which is an environmental history of the Bering Strait that just yesterday was rated nature like the big dog in science, nature's top 10 books of 2019. And they call it an essential science read of this year. So please, everyone, welcome Dr. Bathsheba DeMuth to All Creatures Podcast. Hello, Bathsheba. Hello. Thank you so much, Angie, for having me. It's a real treat. Oh, and it's so exciting to have you here. We get to talk all things Arctic, which is perfect because it's snowing there at the Brown University. Yes. Where you're at, right? And, And that's in Rhode Island. Yes. So we get to talk about snow today. So that's exciting for me here in Florida, of course. And, and of course, for all of our fans out there, we'll be highlighting a lot of the Arctic creatures, um, that live in the area of the Bering Straits. So I'm just so happy to have you here. Yes. Likewise. Happy to be here. Now, would you begin by just telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your background? Were you always a fan of all things Arctic? So I, my interest in the Arctic goes back um, before I started working as an academic and before I uh, even went to grad school. Um, I, when I was about 18, decided that I didn't know what I wanted to study in college. And so I took a gap year. Um, at the time, they were a little bit less formal than I think they've gotten now. There's a lot more options for students who are interested in gap years. So I strung together this pretty ad hoc plan where I was going to go to the Yukon for a couple of months, and then I was going to go to Costa Rica, and then I had some other countries on my list. I was doing all of this on sort of a shoestring budget and um, not a lot of knowledge about what I was getting into, to be honest. (laughs) That sounds like my dream. I love it. Which is a good thing to do when you're 18 in many ways. Um, So the first place I showed up was this little town in the Yukon Territory called Old Crow. Uh, And and town might be a bit of an exaggeration. It has about 200 people in it. Um, It's about 80 miles. Village, Village, I think it's probably the right word. Um, It's 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle. It's about 100 miles from the nearest road. So it's it's pretty out there. Uh, And my job was to train sled dogs for um, uh, an indigenous family in the village. And... I didn't know anything about training sled dogs. I was 18, so I thought I knew lots of things about lots of things. But um, in fact, it required a pretty steep learning curve. And um, my plan to stay there for four months turned into a plan to stay there for a couple of years. Because after I learned what I was doing and, and started to pick up some Arctic skills, I really fell in love with the place. Wow. I can imagine being up there visiting, working with the snow dogs, but to stay up there for that long, you must have really enjoyed yourself and loved learning all these life skills in the Arctic. Yes. And they were, um, you know, I came from a little town in Iowa, so I was used to a landscape that had been, you know, for the last century or so pretty much devoted to agriculture. Um, I was used to living in a place where I was the top of the food chain and then to move to the Arctic and spend a lot of time uh, really out in a, you know, a part of the world where that's not the case and where uh, the assumptions that I had sort of growing up in the Midwest really didn't hold true meant that I had to learn. I mean, I really had to learn how not to die in a pretty kind of basic way. Wow. Right. Um, yes. That's not the number one priority in Iowa. Yes. Uh, it's a little easier yeah. in, the, in the temperate <laughs> regions and in a place that's been as domesticated as uh, much of Iowa has been. So as I started to kind of assemble those skills and learn how to 
um, read the landscapes and pay attention to the weather and think about the behavior of the other animals that were around um, and a really kind of key part of my day-to-day life. I found that really sort of compelling and uh, kind of addictive in a way. Like once I started assimilating those skills and um, learning from my host family and learning how to work with the dogs and just sort of sinking into this place. Um, it was really special. Oh, and now I'm a huge fan of Huskies. I adopted one after my gap year. I took a gap year after college and did a lot of traveling a year and a half or two. And, uh, adopted this Husky because nobody wanted him because he was naughty. Um, Surprise, surprise, <laughs> Sinatra. He turned out to be a wonderful dog for the most part. Uh, and uh, we had a lot of fun together. But I'm obviously drawn to that that energetic, strong, athletic, intelligent breed. And so for my own sake, I must ask, do you have any story you can share with us about working with the sled dogs? Yeah, it's hard to pick a story, actually, because uh, <laughs> if you spend a lot of time around, you know, 30 or 40 dogs, you assimilate a lot of stories very quickly. Um, but I think one of the things that surprised me when I first moved there is that sled dogs, unlike the pets that I had grown up with, are working dogs. They have a, a job to do. They're very enthusiastic about the job. And the number one job is to pull and to run. Um, and they get so unbelievably excited when the snow season starts and just like are beside themselves with joy because that's, that's really the time of year when they come into their own. But part of that or the a result of that is that, you know, once they start running, you get them in harness, you hook them up to the sled and you go, is that they're not necessarily interested in stopping if you fall off the back of the sled. In theory, you can, you know, yell out stop or halt or something like that. Uh, but they might just be so excited that they keep going. And this happened to me a couple times where I came off the back of the sled and the dogs went on their merry way. Um, and a couple of times this happened like in the middle of the village. So it was, you know, it was truly embarrassing because um, I obviously had oh, no. no idea what I was doing. Yeah. And made this very public. But I had a, a moment after I had been working with the dogs for probably about six months where um, we went out for a run one day and it was really early um, in the run. So they were super excited and just raring to go. And we come around a corner that was really icy and I flipped the sled over and hit my head pretty badly. So I, you know, let go of the sled and in fact, I'm like not really paying attention to much. And, um, the, the team actually stopped, like they were paying enough attention and it seemed like actually we're pretty aware of the fact that I was woozy and didn't know what was going on and needed a little bit of help. And that to me felt like a real breakthrough moment that, you know, even though they were at the beginning of their run and they were so excited to go that they picked up on the fact that I was in distress and and needed a moment. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. I was like a, this lone Emmy training, Emmy winning moment (laughs) where you're out there on the snow and you're like, aha, they like me. It's working, but nobody's there. You're all alone. And there are no training in Emmys, unfortunately. I learned that the hard way. Uh, I'm training several animals in the, the when I worked at the zoo, and it would just be me and them, and they would have this great breakthrough moment, and I it's just I had chills right. and was so excited, and I look, and no nobody's around and nobody cares, <laughs> except for you and the animals. But I, I was going to say that's the thing though is that that human animal connection where and especially with the huskies and not only like you said a team of them that are eager to work and want to go for them to actually stop and make sure you're okay more or less we'll never know exactly why they stopped but we'll take it take it for a win for sure <laughs> and besides working with the sled dogs do you have a favorite arctic animal and if so why that's also a really tough question to pick just one. Uh, in the in the course of writing this book, I did research on many different Arctic animals. Um, and I think one of the species that I became the most interested in and uh, just sort of enamored of are bowhead whales, um, which are an ice-adapted whale species. They, they live on the edge of the sea ice um, and historically live both on the Pacific side of the Arctic and the Atlantic side. So there are two sort of distinct populations. 
Um, on the Atlantic side, they were hunted in the, the 16 and 1700s down to a very small number. So they're, they're pretty rare in the Atlantic, um, but was a much larger population remained in the Pacific. Um, and there's many things about bowheads that are really remarkable, but one of them is that they're extraordinarily long lived. So some of the, yeah, did, I think I just saw an article that, uh, like 238 yeah. years or 35 years, they think that one is. So they can live for yeah. uh, about two centuries. There are different ways of dating, you know, how old they are. And we only know their age from animals that have been hunted. There's a kind of limited amount of hunting uh, still allowed in the Arctic. And so it's possible that there are some out there that are older than that. Um, it's unclear kind of what the top age for a bowhead whale is. Um but just imagining it is incredible. And they're, you know, mammals, they're extremely intelligent, they're communicative, they sing to each other, they're very social. So imagining, you know, what a 200 year old whale has experienced and kind of a, the sort of uh, stories that it probably has about its life um, is something that I found really intriguing to think about. Yeah, whales are just incredible. We We have a couple full podcast dedicated to sperm whales and orca and definitely bowhead is going to be on the list for sure. So, yeah. uh, and now you're up there and you're with the dogs and you're learning from your, the indigenous community that you lived with falling in love with the Arctic. Can you walk me through then what happened next where you became an expert in history and society, animals and the environment? How did, how did we go from point A to point B? So this is one of those stories that looks sort of all tidy in retrospect, like I made a series of very deliberate choices, um, but, but in fact was a little more ad hoc, um, as all, no, as all life I things love, are. I love that. Our listeners like that. I love to joke that I still don't know what I'm doing with my life. It's just a series of experiences right. and you go with it and you, and you just keep learning, right. right? So I think it's always comforting to people to know that uh, they're not alone still figuring things yes. out. <laughs> So I did, um, after my years in the Arctic, I did go to college. I was an undergrad at Brown. Um, and while I was an undergraduate, I kept kind of returning to a set of questions that came out of my experience in the Arctic, which was thinking about the ways in which um, the environment or, or nature or however you want to describe things that aren't people influence the ways we think about the world. So um kind of going back to those experiences on the dog sled where you consistently had to pay attention to beings that weren't human in order to have a day that was successful or a day that you survived. And so thinking about that question on the one hand, but then also paying attention to the ways in which our ideas about non-human things really change the environment around us and that it matters. If you think about caribou as a species that you hunt for trophies, or if you think about caribou as a species you never hunt at all, or if you think about caribou as a species that are actually your ancestors in a direct way. And these are all ways that, that people have imagined their relationship with these animals in the Arctic. So I really had these kind of big view from 30,000 feet questions about the relationships between human and nature. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that as an undergrad. Um, but then really as most undergrads, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, so my husband and I joined the Peace Corps. We spent some time in the former Soviet Union. And while I was there, I started really thinking about the ways in which um, socialist development looks like capitalist development in many ways, the emphasis on infrastructure, the emphasis on using lots of energy and fossil fuels, but also looks completely different um, and is sort of right. disorientingly yeah. different. And then yeah. I realized, well, if you're interested in the Arctic and you're interested in kind of socialist ways of imagining modern life, I should probably study Russia because they have a lot of both. Um, there's, you know, it's the biggest Arctic country in the world. Um, and then also, of course, is home to the Soviet Union in the 20th century. So it has this really full on experiment with socialism. And that led me to to a history PhD program to to really get in depth with that experience. Um, and at the time, I didn't actually know that environmental history was a field. So this is the part where, in retrospect, it looks like I was making a series of very nicely coordinated decisions, <laughs> sure. but in fact, was kind of yeah. blundering my way along. So I went to grad school to be a Russian historian. And in my first year, started reading some work in environmental history, just in, in some of the classes I was taking and went, aha, like this, this is the field that's really 
about this set of questions that I've had since I lived in the Arctic to begin with. Um, and that's when I kind of started bringing in those methods, started taking classes in history, but then also in ecology and sort of related fields so that I had some fluency in the kind of natural science uh, picture of what's happening in the Arctic and what's happened in the past. Um, and then expanded the project to look not just at Russia, but at Russia and the United States, because um, if you think about... It's a great comparison. It's a great comparison. And if you think about the, the Bering Strait as a place that the kind of nation state differences between the U S and Russia are so recent. And in fact, ecologically and culturally, they're much more similar than different for most of human history and most of kind of geological time. So that was, um, that's kind of how I ended up working on this particular project and bringing the environment in, in sort of a central way. And now making your way back to Brown university. Yes. And then I, um, I'd sort of joke that the mothership called me home. Um, but, but, <laughs> But really, I was I incredibly it. fortunate that there was a job in environmental history the year that I was finishing my PhD and was doubly uh, fortunate that they hired me for it because it's a wonderful place to teach. Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, it's beautiful. My husband's from New England. We just love it there. So we travel there as often as we can. Uh, so wonderful. And now Bathsheba, since you've been at Brown University, you've recently published a book. We need to talk about this book, this book that was just recently, as of yesterday, voted one of the top 10 science books must read by nature. Uh, it's A Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait. I have it on my nightstand. It's my winter break project to read it. I'm super excited. I love all things history and environment and animals. So I'm super excited to dive into it. But I need to ask if you can just give our listeners a little background of what inspired you to write this book and a little bit about, no, without too many spoiler alerts, what the book is about. <laughs> yes, of course. So um, Floating Coast is a history of people and their relationship with the natural world along the Bering Strait for the last 200 years or so. And my interest in writing it um, emerged out of my graduate work in history um, and an interest in thinking about the ways in which kind of modern economies interact with ecosystems. So at the broadest level, that's really what the book is about. And setting it in the Bering Strait allowed me to look both at the ways in which American-style capitalism and Soviet-style socialism come to exist in this Arctic territory and subarctic territory. And as I was working on it, it increasingly became a history about the ways in which people have related to different animals, because it turns out that much of what both the United States and the Soviet Union wanted to extract from the Arctic, the kind of value that they found in economic terms, um, existed in animals. So it existed in the blubber in whales. It existed in the ivory in walrus tusks. It existed in fox fur in reindeer meat and things like that, um, which was for me really in, in many ways, it was kind of a happy discovery because I really enjoyed the, um, the writing about animals and thinking about um, the ways in which people relate to ecosystems through um, their relationships to animals. And those can take such different forms. Um, they can have this kind of communist variant. They can have a, a capitalist one. And then there was also, you know, the longest history of the way in which people have related to ecosystems and to animals in the Arctic is through the kind of indigenous cosmologies and economies and ways of managing um, that, that relationship between humans and nature. So it's a place that has a lot going on in terms of the different sorts of ideas people have about um, the right way to live in some sense. Um, and then it has yeah, all polar of these... opposite, almost, if you will. Polar opposite. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was afraid the book would end up with some sort of punny title that featured polar <laughs> opposite. So I'm, I'm quite relieved that we <laughs> dodged that. Bullet. Yes. Floating um, Coast is phenomenal. Yes. That's a great title. Um, thank you. Uh, that was actually my editor came up with that. So, um, I, I thank her very much. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of the the general set of questions that are in the book. Um, and then through the course of it, it moves through these different kind of ecological spaces within the, the Bering Strait as a whole, the, the oceans, the coastlines, the tundra, um, in order to explore kind of the specifics of some of these relationships between people and reindeer or people and whales. Well, I'm thinking about, as you mentioned, the relationships between 
different types of people in different countries and then similar animals, similar climate. How do you think our ideas as humans change or shape nature? So one of the things I found when I was doing the research for this is that um, it really depends on what kind of nature it is that we're trying to shape. Uh, and I think one of the things that was helpful about having a, a place in which you're comparing such different ideas about the ways in which nature should be used or people should relate to it is that it, um, it showed how, you know, this United States and the Soviet Union, for example, end up relating to whales in more or less the same way. Um, and one that's actually extremely harmful to whale species and one that's very different from the indigenous way of hunting whales, which is much more limited that both the United States and the Soviet Union end up hunting bowheads and other whale species, just sort of with great abandon um, and to the detriment of, of whales in general. And that, but that looks different, for example, than how the United States and the Soviet Union end up kind of making a relationship with walruses, which starts off with kind of excessive hunting and pushes mm -hmm. walruses close to extinction and then kind of draws them back uh, to healthy populations through kind of conservation legislation. And that has to do with both countries kind of recognizing the fact that there are limits to how many walruses that you can kill and still have a healthy population. And that looks different than the ways in which people change their relationships with reindeer. Um, so I ended up kind of discovering that there are actually multiple versions of socialism and capitalism operating, depending a bit on the ecologies that they're trying to have a home in. Interesting. Um, and they look really different than the, the versions that are at play in a place that has agriculture, for example, like up in this part of the Arctic, people are not growing crops. There's, that's just not a possibility. So, you know, the, the kind of ideologies and ideal ways that society should look have to adapt to the fact that it's a really different environmental context. Yeah. And then now on the flip side, how does nature and all of its beauty and hardships change or shape what we think about the world? So again, I think that it's, it's kind of a back and forth. Um, so mm -hmm. I think you know, people are constantly observing and pulling in and um, watching the ways in which the natural world is changing around them. And that in some cases that really alters the ways in which um, we imagine having a good relationship with it. Well, like you mentioned with the walruses, how after their populations crashed, we put in laws to help and serve them. And now their population numbers have rebounded at least somewhat. But was that also done with the whales and the whaling industry or why are certain species affected or influence us more than others? Yeah, I think some of it has to do particularly in the differences between how um, the U.S. and the Soviet Union treated walruses versus how they treated whales is that walruses are um, part of the time they're terrestrial, or at least they come inside territorial waters. Ah, we can see them. You can see them. And there's a sense that they're animals that a country can own. Um, there's all sorts of reasons ah, to they think have that territories. You, they have territories, right? Um, they move into territories that are considered national. And that regulating the harvest of whales has always been more complicated because they spend most of their lives outside of national territorial waters and outside of any kind of jurisdiction. So you have to get countries from all over the world together to say, we're going to have a particular um, regime of how many whales we kill per year. And that makes it a more complicated uh, picture. And it's more prone to countries cheating, frankly, that they're like, well, sure. no one's, no one's really paying attention or even if they're paying attention, there's no capacity to discipline harvesting in excess the way that there would be within kind of a national framework. So some of it just has to do with the way that, you know, we as a species at this particular moment set up our political life, which is to draw boundaries around it based on, you know, what we call nation states, which don't really have anything to do with ecological function boundaries or, no. boundaries or where species go. Um, and sometimes really are at odds with, uh, you know, what animal 
behavior needs and requires to be, to be healthy. Yeah. And with spending so much time, both on the U S and Russian side of the Bering Strait in the Arctic circle, what can we learn from the indigenous communities near the Bering Strait? That's a question um, that I've, I've gotten a lot with this book. Um, and I think one way to think about it is that these are communities that have um, the longest standing relationship with the Arctic environment of any people on the planet. It goes back thousands of years. Um, it's a much more kind of robust, if, if you're just thinking about this in kind of a data sense, it's a much more robust data set, right? It goes back a very long time um, and has seen the Arctic through, you know, changes previous to the, the kind of era of climate change that we're in now. Um, and so I think one of the things that that people who live outside of the Arctic can learn um, is really actually just to pay attention to what these communities are saying about their own experience and um, both in their past and in the present and the ways in which their understanding changes going into the future. Um, and rather than sort of separating off indigenous knowledge from scientific knowledge, understanding that indigenous knowledge traditions um, and in many cases, the ways in which indigenous folks have thought about their relationship with the non-human world um, is a kind of fully formed uh, method of knowing the world. It's very kind of robust and in-depth and um, has such amazing kind of granular understandings of ecosystems and animal behavior and the ways in which people can fit into those ecosystems rather than be considered really separate from them. Yeah. Um, it's a lot more interconnectedness versus, I guess, separate, separate that we are part of the, uh, the food web of the ecosystem. Right. And obviously we're on top, but in the same instance, all the parts, everything from the littlest, fungus to a plant to a bacteria to an apex predator is important in the food web. And I feel I've always felt that the indigenous communities have cherished that and understood that where a lot of time our modern societies have not and could probably take a few lessons <laughs> from them. Yeah. I think there's a tendency in the intellectual traditions that, that I come from, the kind of sort of Western way of organizing knowledge to really fundamentally separate humans from the environments in which they live. And you can see right. it in the way that universities are organized, right? I'm, you know, trained as a humanist or a social scientist. And that means that I exist in a very different part of the university than the people who are trained in the natural sciences. With the and number so one book, or, <laughs> but with a top 10 book in nature, reads. So, so it can be bridged. Um, it can be bridged. Be you bridged. have bridged the gap. Um, it should be. Everything's connected. And right. you have done it, Bathsheba, <laughs> with this amazing book. Um, yes, hopefully. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you try, right? Yeah, that's all you can you do. Can, you can tell that I'm an Iowan and I don't take compliments very easily. <laughs> they make me uncomfortable. Uh, Midwest, yes. We are a, we are very nice ladies. That's uh, how we were raised. We can't help it. But you should that's take right. this compliment. And I definitely encourage all my listeners, and we'll put it up on our show notes, but to check out Floating Coast and Environmental History of the Bering Strait, because it is, it is, we're not going to be able to cover all these amazing topics um, in the hour that I have with you. So you definitely want to check out this book. And I think it's, an, because one of the beauties of a historian's perspectives is that, that you have the history and we learn from the history can help us not only in the present make better decisions, but also in the future. And so for our listeners, could you give a little synopsis about the relationship between the indigenous communities and commercial capitalism and the consumerism that came into the Bering Strait regions and where this relationship now currently stands? Yes, I'll try to summarize what is a major theme of a 400-page book into a couple of minutes. Um, so this is going to, to do some injustice to how complicated this question is, but um, the, the history that I tell the, the kind of starting moment for the book in many ways is the arrival of commercial whalers, uh, from the, from New England, from Providence and New Bedford and Nantucket and towns like that in the Bering Strait, um, in the 1840s. And they bring with them not just, uh, this kind of 
massive desire for whale oil that leads them to kill many, many bowheads, but also trade goods um, that they sort of bring into the Bering Strait. And these, in many ways, are layering into trade networks that had been bringing commercially made goods from Russia um, and also from the British Empire in Canada into the communities in the Bering Strait, but they do so kind of with new force um, and with kind of a new level of access. And what happens by the 1880s, so about, you know, 40 years after the arrival of whalers, is that the number of bowhead whales and the number of walruses has gone down dramatically due to commercial hunting, sort of basically due to the consumer demands of people living on the East Coast. And the result for indigenous villages, particularly those along right along the coastline who are dependent on walrus and whales for food, is that there's kind of widespread famine um, all around the Bering Strait. And in the wake of this, many indigenous people start participating in trade, not just for things that they find really valuable, like metal pots and tools and beads and, you know, things that were sort of immediately incorporated into indigenous societies because they had sort of obvious utility or beauty or, you know, other social value, but start needing to participate in, in the market for kind of basic survival, like to have access to food that's imported from, um, you know, flour and sugar and things like that that are imported from uh, Southern United States. Um, and so that kind of changes the relationship from one where indigenous peoples are using the market for exactly what they want to one where they need the market in order to provide in a sort of a really basic material sense. And that that kind of back and forth between the market providing things that are desirable and the market providing basic necessities, I think is a dynamic that continues into the present. And it's in some ways a dynamic that is true for all of us, no matter where we live, that we're always kind of thinking about consumption. On the one hand, we're consuming things because we need food. We need to keep our houses warm. It's really important to wear clothing, particularly if you live in places that are cold. These are kind of basic necessities. But then there's also all this other stuff that consumer capitalism offers us and how much of it should we be consuming at what level? What makes a good life um, is is a question that kind of continues to be negotiated um, in these communities. But I think it's a question that many people feel more generally, like how much should I consume Oh, what I'm kind feeling of a big time this holiday season in, right? as I'm stepping on Legos and tripping yeah. over toys that the kids had interest in for five seconds and now don't anymore. Right. And instead they'd rather just play with a pot or a bouncy ball. Right. So yes, yes. Consumerism is definitely something worth considering and thinking about. And I know for a lot of my friends and colleagues, it's uh, something we've been talking a lot about as yeah. to how to reduce it. Right. <laughs> for for multiple reasons, for our own sanity, but for the environment, uh, for for many reasons. So it's right. definitely worth uh, worth a, another conversation. That's for sure. And my follow up question would be in regards to the animals, traditionally the caribou, uh, the whaling industry. How has that dynamic changed or shifted in indigenous communities since? capitalism and consumerism came about? Are, are they able to work things out or uh, what's happening with that? So it's a, it's a little bit species dependent, but generally speaking, just to summarize um, walruses and whales and caribou, if you're in North America or reindeer, if you're on the Russian side of the Bering Strait, uh, continue to be really essential pieces of indigenous societies today. Um, and both sure, in, yeah. Uh, a kind of a, a really basic material sense that these are communities that are really distant from um, from sort of big box grocery stores. By the time food gets out to them, the, the food is often extremely expensive and the quality tends to go down because it's been shipped a long way. Um, so there's a, there's a really kind of material necessity for um, eating whales and walrus and caribou and reindeer in these communities. Uh, but there's also a kind of a much more, um, cultural necessity of having access to these animals and that re- sort of retaining a relationship with the Arctic environment is something that is conducted through hunting in, in many cases, or through the sense that um, to be a person in an Arctic space is to be reliant on these other species. And 
their ability to provide for families and for communities. So it's both a kind of both a material and a broader, more social or spiritual relationship that's sustained um, up into the present. And the, in many ways, the, the question now is that, you know, the Arctic sort of has survived a 20th century or a 19th and 20th century that were often defined by uh, massive levels of market hunting, um, or in the, the Soviet case, kind of the communist variant of that, um, that have been really put under strong regulations so that we don't have people from New Bedford going up and killing, you know, 15,000 walruses in a summer anymore. Um, and the walrus populations have come back and are quite healthy. Um, but the, the question really is what happens as the Arctic becomes warmer for those populations. And that's a, that's sort of a whole new challenge in the 21st century. Um, and one that is much more open-ended because it's, it's harder to just focus a set of laws on walruses and fix that issue because it has to do with, you know, these big global trends in the, the ways in which we use fossil fuels um, that, you know, people in the Arctic cannot just on their own uh, regulate or manage the way that there were some capacity to do in previous uh, centuries. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk about global climate change here in a second. But first, would you mind talking a little bit about how the environmental history of the Bering Strait has affected caribou populations and foxes? We've we've talked a little about a little bit about walruses and whales, but I'm a huge fan of caribou and who doesn't like an Arctic fox? So I would love to hear your perspective on how and how that relationship has changed um, from both the United States and or Russian perspective. Yeah, that's a great, uh, great question. And they're such fun animals. Um, I think caribou are some of my favorites just because they're both so incredibly goofy seeming. Um, yes. and also kind of noble. They have, they have sort of both sides, um, yeah. happening at once. Uh, so the, the relationship between caribou and which are called caribou in North America and reindeer on the, the Russian side, the Eurasian part of, um, the Arctic are actually the same species. They're sort of different subspecies. And they've had really different relationships with people over the last couple of hundred years in that on the Russian side of the Bering Strait, uh, reindeer were domesticated hundreds of years ago by Chukchi, uh, indigenous Chukchi people living in the interior tundra of the, the kind of Russian side of the strait. Um, but caribou were not domesticated in North America. So not in Alaska, not over in Canada. So in... Alaska people hunted caribou. Usually it was kind of a collectivist hunting practice where groups of people would follow caribou herds or intersect their migrations and hunt them as a big group because it's a, it's a big challenging job. Whereas on the Russian side, Chukchi people owned herds of caribou um, that were domestic and lived close to people. So there was really kind of different relationships at play before the United States um, and the Soviet Union arrived on the scene um, and then when the United States and Soviet Union arrive, they end up attempting these kind of bizarrely inverted projects um, in kind of interventions into the way that humans and this species live together. I'm intrigued. Tell more. So on the American side of the, the strait, the U.S. government kind of arrives in Alaska after Alaska is purchased from the Russian Empire um, in 1867. And... For the U.S. government, Alaska is a real challenge because it's a huge territory. Almost all of the people living it are an indigenous and agriculture is a real non-starter, particularly up around the Bering Strait. It's just not going to happen. But the way in which the U.S. government thinks about um, assimilating and often forcibly assimilating, colonizing Native peoples is to make them agricultural, to settle them in space give them farmland, kind of make them part of the American project that way. And that had been kind of a piece of American policy across the colonization of the lower 48 states. But then what do you do in Alaska? Because you don't get to have agriculture. And what the U.S. government decides is that they should import domesticated reindeer from the Russian side of the Bering Strait and use them to kind of create indigenous reindeer farmers, and that this is going to be the core piece of kind of American colonization in this part of Alaska. And so they're basically taking collectivist, you know, caribou hunters and turning them into private property owning reindeer farmers. 
Oh, this story is is getting good. This is a made for movie plot. Really I can it's, tell. It's such a like when I sort of bizarre started yeah. putting this story together out of the archives. It's like how on earth did this not get more attention? <laughs> Who was in charge? It's so <laughs> yeah. I mean, history is filled with these sorts of stories, but this right. That's why this is amazing. Funny. So keep going, keep going. Part two. So that's the U.S. and they start this project in the 1890s, um, and then. The Soviet Union takes control of the Russian side of the Bering Strait um, after 1917. And what they find are Chukchi people who own reindeer. Um, then the Soviet state is, of course, trying to get rid of private property because it's considered sort of one of the root causes of all of the problems with capitalism. So they show up on the Chukchi tundra and say, uh, we need to take your private property away and make you into collective reindeer farmers. So they're basically trying to do exactly the opposite of what the United States is trying to do just, you know, 50 miles away across the Bering Strait. Um, and not too surprisingly, Chukchi response to the, the sort of Soviet overture that you should give up all your reindeer and become collective herders is no thanks. Um, and, and actually, I'm sure they said it just like that too. They were like, no, yeah. thank you. <laughs> I think it actually started off kind of as no thank you. Like just. Uh-huh. Keep your ideas and that, that'll be fine. And it's, it's once the, the efforts to collectivize become forcible on the part of the Soviets that there's real, there's open violence between, uh, Chukchi herders and the Soviet, um, kind of colonial forces, essentially. So, you know, those, those two kind of attempts to really dramatically alter the way in which people related to this particular species play out through the whole 20th century. Um, but what I found interesting in watching this is that, you know, both the United States and the Soviet Union put a lot of uh, resources and effort into transforming this relationship and in particular into making the tundra into a place that was absolutely perfect for reindeer, like trying to get rid of wolves completely, trying to vaccinate reindeer against diseases, trying to control flies, doing all of this technological work to make the tundra perfect for reindeer and nothing else. But at the end of the day, reindeer populations are so um, keyed to relatively minor shifts in the Arctic climate, um, which historically up into you know the 1980s or 1990s, when you start to see anthropogenic climate change interfering, has always had these cycles where it gets a little bit warmer, like you know half a degree Celsius, and then it gets a little bit colder. And reindeer populations tend to do pretty badly in those moments when it's a little bit warmer and those tend to come around every 50 to hundred years. And the populations of reindeer and caribou all over the Arctic tend to kind of grow as the pop, you know, as the, the climate's a little cooler and then tend to crash when you have successive years that are a bit warmer. So, you know, the Soviet Union and the U S do all of this work to try to kind of make reindeer this perfect stable resource. And at the end of the day, the climate kind of has the last laugh because it's a species that's, that's quite uh, attuned to pretty minor changes in that. Yeah. And so how does our movie close? Are the reindeer still domesticated on the U S side and are they hurting them on the Soviet side or how did this bizarre experiment end up working out? So there are still uh, reindeer farmers um, and Yupiak and Yupik um, and other indigenous groups still do farm some reindeer in Alaska. Um, it, never turned into quite the business that the original uh, kind of founders of this plan imagined. They had these kind of illusions that there would be millions and millions of domestic reindeer and they'd be exporting meat out of Alaska to the contiguous United States. Um, and that has never really taken off. And in part, it has not taken off because the beef lobby actually did a lot of work to prevent reindeer meat from becoming really popular. Um, there Interesting. Was, there was some mm-hmm. back lobbying and also because Alaska is really far away and there's sure. you know, issues with shipping yeah. and things like that. Um, but there are still reindeer farmers. And if you you know spend time in downtown Anchorage, you can go buy reindeer meat sausage in little street stands um, that come out of these farms. So it still exists. Um, the Russian side of the Bering Strait is, of course, no longer socialist after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. Um, but the reindeer herding continues to be really important and kind of retains in some ways some of the Soviet ways of organizing it. So people call the groups that go out and take care of a, um, 
a herd of reindeer in a particular area. They call them brigades, brigadi, which is the, the Russian term. It's not a Chukchi term. It comes in with the Soviets. Um, so they, they kind of have this way of herding reindeer that's a hybrid between the Chukchi methods that have been in place for a long time before the Soviet Union and then what the Soviets kind of do to reorganize that. Um, and then also the, the sort of post 1990s um, need to sell reindeer meat rather than have it be a piece of the, the sort of socialist state. Wow. Fascinating, Bathsheba. I'm just, it's just incredible. And it's just the perspective, like you said, the Bering Strait being 50 miles wide, same species, same climate, and just such different perspectives. Uh, it's fascinating. I, uh, like I said, everyone, please check out Floating Coast. You'll, you'll not only learn more about the reindeer, but also bowhead whales, foxes, walruses, and the indigenous communities in the area. So it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal collection. And I must, I must ask, how long does a book like this take to write? Do I even want to know? <laughs> um, well, it's probably good to know just so you're not waiting with bated breath for the next book because it's going to be a little while. <laughs> for, the, um, for the sequel, yeah. <laughs> so this book, I started doing research for it in 2012. Um, it took about seven years from, wow. you know, the first trip to the archives to finished book on a bookshelf. Um, it took, I spent a year doing research on the U.S. side um, and then a year doing research in Russia and then two years to write the first draft of the book and then about three years to turn the first draft into the final thing. So it, it takes a little while. Wow. Well, congratulations. I mean, a long, long time, but to be top 10 science book of 2019, I'll tell you what, it's probably worth the wait. And, uh, we'll be, we'll, uh, we'll definitely be waiting anxiously seven years from now for the, for the, uh, sequel. <laughs> You're starting the clock now for. <laughs> Now, the Sheba, I want to switch gears and talk about climate change. Obviously, it's one of the biggest issues facing the world right now. And the Arctic is, has been and is currently the hot spot. That's probably not the right word. Uh, maybe it is, uh, for the visual and physical changes that are impacting the animals and people that live in the area. So with you spending so much time there and studying, obviously, the animals, the environment, the indigenous people that live there, what are some important facts about climate change in the Arctic and how it how is it impacting the animals and people that live there? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think, you know, after 2018 and 2019, which have been such incredibly warm years in the Arctic and really actually coming on the heels of a really warm decade that you know, when I say that I work on the Arctic, people's first question is usually about climate change and, and the sort of things that people who live there are observing and, and trying to imagine about what's coming. Um, I think a couple important facts are the Arctic is on average warming about twice as fast as temperate parts of the globe. So they are experiencing a kind of rate of change that people who live in Florida or in Providence are not yet um, experiencing. And so it's in some ways, a place to look to in terms of the kinds of ecological changes that start to happen when you get that level of warming. Um, and looking at that is, um, and I think to summarize it, the, the state of thinking about Arctic ecosystems and the ways in which people are embedded in them is just filled with question marks. Um, the rate of change is so rapid and what it will mean for individual species and individual biomes is really up in the air. It's hard to predict. It's hard to model it out. Um, there's lots of really good work being done on this, but it's, you know, for example, will salmon, which are a species that really enjoy cooler water, they're not fans of a warmer North Pacific. Are they simply just going to keep moving north? Are they going to find you know, more northerly rivers than they've ever migrated into before? Or are they sort of not going to be able to make that adaptive step. And that will probably depend on the species of salmon and other factors. Um, the same thing is very true of caribou and reindeer, which are right now in a period of really quite dramatic decline. The populations globally are down about 50% over uh, what they were at the beginning of the 21st century. Wow. Yeah. And, 
you know, because ecosystems are complicated things, you have to disaggregate the fact that these are always populations that are in flux. They're not, you know, they don't usually exist in a steady state, but they also seem to be um, dropping off in ways that are really dramatic. And then what does that mean in terms of um, the kind of long-term prognosis? Are we going to just hit a new threshold number that's a little bit lower than it was or a lot lower than it was? Or, you know, are these a species that are so adapted to kind of ice age or remnant ice age conditions that they're not going to uh, be able to adapt to an Arctic that's significantly warmer. Um, and you can play that out for all of the ice adapted marine species. So the, the seal populations, the bearded seals and ring seals, the walruses uh, that are animals that really depend on sea ice for um for everything really like walruses, that's where they hang out socially. They're incredibly social animals. It's how they get access to food because the, the sea ice floats right over um, the feeding beds where they spend most of their time um, eating. It's the place they give birth. Um, so as the sea ice retreats, what happens to walruses um, and their populations? So it really feels like every year there's just sort of a new set of data about you know, what's happened in the Arctic, how much warmer it is, um, how much more erratic it is, how many more forest fires there are, and then a set of kind of questions about what does this mean for um, how these species are going to be able to adapt. And it's almost certainly species by species that some will, you know, find new niches and some of them might not. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I think the thing I noticed the most when I read the work of... Um, indigenous folks who are talking about the place that they live and reading the work of ecologists and other natural scientists who work in the Arctic is that there's just so many adjectives, right? That it's unprecedented. It's unforeseen. It's shocking. It's like you sort of start running out of those words because the the pace of change seems really um, outsized. Yeah. And of course at all creatures podcast, we love to talk about the animals, but how is it impacting the people that live in the Arctic? It does vary a little bit depending on uh, where communities are located and what kinds of, um, you know, what, what kinds of ecologies they're settled into, but the most dramatic cases, um, and these are communities that actually receive quite a bit of press attention are places along the Alaska coastline. Um, so on the coast of the Chukchi Sea or the, uh, the Bering Sea, where the decreased sea ice presence means that the storm systems in the Bering and the Chukchi Sea are much, much stronger every year and are eroding these villages away pretty rapidly. So coastline, yeah. The, the kind of coastal retreat is, you know, in the case of Shishmaref, which is a barrier island in the Chukchi Sea that has a community on it, they're losing about 10 feet of their land per year. Um, wow. Wow. Except when there are really, really large storms when they can lose that much um, very quickly. So, you know, that community is trying to figure out, do they relocate? Where do they relocate to? Who pays for relocation? Um, just sort of a whole set of questions um, that that are being provoked by the, the really rapid rate of change. And those those questions are different than communities that live in the interior where the issues are um, more related to thawing permafrost, um, which changes, uh, it changes the composition of the kind of biome in general, because the kind of species that are adapted to permafrost don't necessarily like, uh, not having it around. So spruce trees, black spruce in particular, um, there's this phenomenon called drunken trees, um, that people talk about in the Arctic where black spruce forests, where the, the permafrost has retreated lower, all the trees have kind of lost their root base and are tipped over and dead. So you just have these whole kind of areas where you have just sort of dead trees leaning over uh, with no new growth on them. And then of course, these are a huge fire hazard because once they're dead, they're very dry. Um, so if you have a lightning strike, they, they can take off really quickly. So the, the issues are different depending on the communities. Um, and therefore the kind of community responses are a little bit different just sort of based on the challenges they're facing. But some communities in the Arctic have been really proactive in terms of thinking about ways in which their participation in a carbon economy can be minimized or uh, completely reduced. Um, So the community that I first lived in when I moved to the Arctic um, of Old Crow 
has put in a really massive array of solar panels um, and is planning on being essentially carbon neutral within the next decade or so, um, which for a community that's dependent on airplanes to fly in much of its um, much of the goods from the outside because there's not road access is a really it's an ambitious plan. It's a complicated thing to think through. Um, but I think the other things that these communities are, you know, very vocal in communicating is that, you know, Old Crow with all, you know, two to 300 people can decarbonize and that would be great. But they really need the rest of us to decarbonize too. Right. Um, Because if, if you care about Arctic wildlife, that's probably the number one thing you can think about doing is drawing down um, your carbon footprint and agitating for policies that do that on a much larger scale, because, you know, individual action is important, but having kind of a big sort of social plan for how we're going to do this as a society is really critical. Yes, definitely. I always say vote and vote with your dollar. That's really important to uh, show policymakers what you see is important. And I know in the States with a, with our election years coming up, that's one of the biggest issues I'll be voting for is people that actually care about the environment. So it's very, very, very important for everything else to continue yes. as we know it. And so with that being said, what are some, for those of us that live on the mainland U.S. or not in the Arctic, if you will, and, and we have listeners in many countries uh, throughout the world, what are some misconceptions about climate change in the Arctic? I think there's, there's two that I think come up uh, pretty regularly. One of which is that climate change in the Arctic is actually isolated in the Arctic. And that it's sort of a question of, oh, we might not have polar bears in 50 years and wouldn't that be terrible? Um, when, in fact, the, the kinds of dynamics that are taking place in the Arctic are influencing the climate across the world. It's a global phenomenon. Um, the, the climate that human beings are used to and that Homo sapiens kind of grew up in as a species is one where there is ice at the poles. And that ice um, has an enormous role in stabilizing and kind of setting the terms of the global climate. And I'm not a climatologist, so I'm not going to try to get into the intricacies of how the ice cap and the difference between equatorial waters and their temperature and the poles. You're doing better you know, than me already. So makes the, <laughs> makes the jet stream stable and all sorts of these things, but there's really good work out there um, on this. And so, you know, what happens in the Arctic is not going to stay in the Arctic. Right. And so in some ways, you know, if you're interested in your own self, like kind of out of self-interest, there's a reason to pay attention to to these dynamics and kinds of change and not just think about it as, well, you know, human beings will be fine if there's no polar bears. Right. Which. Yeah. You know, no. This isn't a conservation. It's question, connected. Right. Right. It's a it's a much bigger yes. question. Yeah. I, uh, one of my interviews with Dr. Sunarto out of Sumatra, who studies Sumatran tigers and their declining populations, he always said, one of his quotes was, if you save tigers, you save yourself. And I think that that's a great perspective for people that, like you said, aren't as interested in saving polar bears or some of the wildlife that, of course, catches a lot, a lot of people's eyes as it's a global issue. It's just right now a lot more visual, I think, in the Arctic area than it is in some of our other more temperate climates. And I think the other um, kind of misconception um, or just kind of difference between the way in which people outside of the Arctic and the way in which particularly indigenous communities in the Arctic understand climate change is that, you know, from the outside, it looks like something that is completely new and unprecedented and experiencing this kind of ecological change is just sort of this kind of fundamental and kind of apocalyptic um, occurrence in the Arctic. And it is, I don't want to in any way underplay how serious it is and how complex it is and the, you know, unbelievable potential downsides of not stopping it as quickly as possible and mitigating the ways in which it's influencing people um, and the ecosystems they live in. But on the other hand, if you look at the last couple of hundred years in the Arctic Um, Indigenous communities have had to live through kind of a succession of really massive changes provoked by, for example, overhunting bowhead whales and walruses and the arrival of the United States and the Soviet Union and their kind of colonial plans that moved people around 
um, and changed their access to resources and the ways in which they related to each other. So it climate change starts to look like a piece of a, a historical continuity rather than this kind of new and completely unprecedented uh, happening. And I think that that's a helpful way to think about it because it also means that there are communities and this isn't true just in the Arctic. I think it's true in frontline communities around the world who have some experience dealing with this kind of change and imagining how to um, create societies that are durable um, and kind of able to carry their own value systems forward despite them um, and work within that kind of change to, to not have it just be sort of an apocalyptic, let's burn everything down. Everything is terrible. Woe is me kind of narrative. Um, right. And I think that that's, that's important because for many people that I talk to who live, you know, in the kind of temperate world down here, this is the first time they've imagined experiencing this kind of change. And so it's so incredibly shocking. It can be really paralyzing. Um, and then in fact, there are many communities who have been marginalized for, you know, class reasons or racial reasons in the United States and across the world who have real experience uh, dealing with this kind of situation. And who we can well, learn from. Yeah. Well, and taking notes from the people of the Arctic that have, like you said, have lived through a lot of other shifts to their society in the past couple hundred years. Do you think there are lessons we can learn from them? Or is there still hope to perhaps maybe not reverse global climate change, but at least stop it? Is there hope? So I think... um I think there is hope. And I think the hope is, it's not an abstraction. The hope is in getting out and doing the work to, you know, build the kind of social change that is going to be required in order to really change how we use energy as a society. And what gives me hope is that I see particularly young people engaging in this in a way um, that is very new. It's happened just in the last like year and a half to two years. It's extremely energetic. Um, and it's also very no nonsense, right? It's not abstract or idealistic. It's about really thinking in concrete terms, what is it that we're going to have to do? We need to do it very rapidly. We need to do it carefully. We need to do it with an eye to the justice questions that have always been embedded in the way that we use energy and actually correcting them rather than sort of continuing to perpetrate them into the future. So that I find hopeful, but I don't, it's hope that comes from really having kind of boots on the ground um, and doing, doing the work yourself and finding a place where your own contributions to those kinds of movements um, in whatever form they take can, can really stick. Yeah. And so do you have any advice for the average person not living in the Arctic? Uh, how can we help conserve the Arctic ecosystems and the animals that inhabit it? So I think there's a couple things. Um, one of them is, you know, if you, if you really sort of care about the Arctic and, and want it to continue as sort of a flourishing place of the kind that we see today, um, thinking about ways to decarbonize is probably the number one thing you can do. And, you know, the challenging thing about climate change is that it is a massive and kind of abstract feeling problem and can feel really overwhelming. The good thing about it, though, is that that means that whatever your particular talents are, they have a place in figuring this out. It's not just going to be solved by engineers. It's not just going to be solved by poets. It's not just going to be solved by people who can install solar panels. It's going to take people who can do all of those things. So figuring out kind of what your uh, particular talents as a person are and the kind of community that you live in and start having conversations about it with people, too, um, because I think... Um, making it normal to start thinking about climate change as something that we just need to factor in to everything we imagine is critical and not isolating it to a, this is an environmental issue and we'll deal with it when we're dealing with the environment. But this is an issue that's about transportation. It's an issue that's about healthcare and how we provide it. It's an issue about jobs and what kind of jobs we train people for. It really hits all of these, these sectors. Um, and so I think finding the place where, you know, you as an individual have talents that can contribute to those questions um, is it's helpful to you. It's helpful to your community. And in the kind of long-term payoff is that it's also helpful to the places that are really distant. And now for people or students or volunteers that find themselves really attracted to the Arctic and the creatures that inhabit that area, 
Do you have any recommendations about how to further pursue either studies in Arctic ecosystems or whether it's on the animal side or on the human community side? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, one kind of strange byproduct of climate change is that the interest in the Arctic has really gone up. There's a lot more being published about the Arctic. There's a lot more uh, just sort of in all media sectors from podcasts to filmmaking to books to articles. So there's just a lot that you can kind of as an individual read and watch and listen to. Um, so that's one way to do it. Um, I really like following people who live in the Arctic on Instagram and on Twitter because it gives you the sense oh, of sort of yeah. what daily life is like there. Um, and you just sort of get up, updates about what's happening without you yourself being there. Um, and that that's, it's kind of an immersive experience um, at a distance. So I think that can be a way of kind of catching the news from a very particular place. Um, and I think, you know, more generally, just if it's something that interests you, um, you know, thinking about people in your community that also share this interest and then, you know, finding ways of connecting with them and using that as a way of kind of introducing these larger questions about how we're imagining our relationship with the environment and with climate and, and those kinds of issues. Yes. And, or maybe go run some sled dogs on a vacation, <laughs> which is on my right. bucket if list. If you want to do the extreme version, you can. <laughs> Although flying is horrible for your carbon footprint. So right. I don't know. Yeah. I'll have to, I'll, I'll just follow some dog sledders. Maybe that'll be, I can live vicariously. That's right. Uh, yeah. You can, you know, yes. follow the hashtag Iditarod on Instagram and there's just, you know, tons of amazing sled dog pictures. So. Oh, awesome. I will do that very soon. That's amazing. And now I have one more important question. How can people learn more about your work in the Arctic and or your most recent famous, if you will, uh, book, The Floating Coast, an environmental history of the Bering Strait? So you can find me, uh, my handle is the same across platforms. So on Twitter, I am at brdemuth. Um, on Instagram, I am at brdemuth. I'm actually in the process of digitizing all of the slides that I took when I first lived up in the Arctic 20 years ago. So my Instagram feed is just like endless, you know, photos of sled dogs and um, yes, Arctic please. landscapes. Awesome. Um, mm-hmm. um, and you can find information about Floating Coast um, on my website, which is also www.brdemuth.com. Um, and you can find Floating Coast at your local bookstore or anywhere else you get books. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you, Bathsheba. This has been such a pleasure. So informative learning about the Arctic, about the people that live there, about the amazing animals. And A Floating Coast is a must read for anyone who loves animals, the Arctic, the environment, or history. And we'll go ahead and put all of Bathsheba's information on our show notes. So definitely uh, give her a shout out and let her know that you like her stuff and uh, give her a follow on either Instagram or Twitter and your your feeds will your social media feeds will definitely thank you for all the pictures of the Arctic and we can live vicariously through your adventures and your travels and your studies so thank you Bathsheba so much for being here and taking time out of your busy schedule to help us learn more about the Arctic thank you Angie this has been a real treat 